0: Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Joe Milliken. He's the author of a book, Let's Go, Benjamin Orr and the Cars. Welcome, Joe.
1: Steve, it's so nice to be here. I know it, uh, it took a little while and couple of phone calls and messages to make it happen. And I appreciate you hanging in there with me. And I'm real happy to be here. So I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me.
0: Well, you know, the cars are a fun band, everybody, I think loves them. And, uh, you know, you're a native Bostonian, you're a music journalist, you're a lifelong rock and roll fan. And that sounds like a pretty good mix to write this book.
1: Yeah, I am um, originally from Boston. Parents moved me out of there when I was young. My dad was a Woolworth store manager. Um, he managed the old five and dime stores and, you know, soda fountain and record bin and a really cool place to hang out when you were a kid. And they kept giving them bigger stores. So when I was a kid, I moved around a lot. I lived in upstate New York. I lived on Long Island for a couple of years, a couple different spots in Mass. Um, then in high school, my dad made a move to New Hampshire, like the area, didn't want to be in the city anymore. And I kind of settled in the Southern Vermont, New Hampshire area, but once a Bostonian, always a Bostonian. So, uh, I, um, I've done a lot of research on the Boston music scene, obviously, even though the cars didn't really start in Boston, they're considered a Boston band. So I did a lot of research revolving around it and got a pretty good idea, pretty good hold of, uh. The Boston music scene in the 70s, 80s, even though I was a little young to experience it firsthand, I've done a lot of research about it.
0: Yeah, I I definitely consider them a Boston band. And do you remember your first exposure to the Cars? Was it radio or, you know, it wasn't the Rat, as you mentioned, somewhere in between MTV, maybe?
1: The first recollection of the Cars, it's 1978. I'm in middle school. I'm in seventh grade, so I'm just starting to learn about rock and roll. I was going to a Babe Ruth practice. I was on the Babe Ruth baseball team. My coach was giving me a ride to the game. He had the first Cars album. It had just been released. Well, it was probably a couple years old by then. He had it on eight track. (laughs) So that tells you how far back we're going. And he played that album on the way to a game. And I had only a handful of bands I knew at the time. I was just starting. I maybe had 10 albums to my name. I heard that Cars album and I was like, what in the world is this? The the beginning of the first album with a Good Times Roll, that, that honking sound that sounds like a car horn and I... Who is this? And and that's where it started. And I got home after the game, went up to my friend's house up the street, who was a year older than me and just learning about music too. And lo and behold, I walk into his bedroom to tell him about this cool band I heard of. And he had the album on his turntable and we were blasting it from there. So they were really one of... The first bands I ever got into, and if you had told me when I was 13 that someday I would interview Greg Hawks and write a book about Benjamin or I would have said you were nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and lo and behold, it happened. So that's kind of how I got introduced to the cars. They were one of the first bands I ever got into.
0: Well it's interesting and it's it's very much a tale of the times that it's not a specific song, but rather that record in my mind is also so perfectly sequenced by side and just song to song that it's really more of a piece, even though it had a couple of brilliant radio singles. I always remember the sequence of those songs still to this day. You know, when I hear it I know what's coming next. And you know, unfortunately that's not a thing anymore.
1: The band actually kind of made a little running joke about it. Once they became huge in the mid 80s, and they were all over the country. They used to joke, they kind of considered that album their greatest hits. <laughs> Even though it was their debut. I mean, like you just said, when you listen to that album, if you love that album, you just know what's coming next. It just flows. And I've been asked what my favorite car song is. And I always say, the second side of <laughs> that first album, the whole bye-bye love into moving in stereo and all mixed up, to me, that's like one 20-minute song. It sounds weird to me if I hear it broken up on the radio. I'm just so used to it, almost like a suite. Yeah. playing from beginning to end and so i always cheat and say side two of the debut album is my favorite car song you know
0: what we'll accept that we'll accept that (laughs) so so this is clearly a book about the cars but as the title states the focus is on the bass player ben Orr. yes so why ben was there a connection to him or did you enjoy his songs most? i mean they both ended up him and rick okasic you know dying kind of youngish you know i mean uh, it's it's very much a, a car's bio, but it, it slants towards Ben, and I'm just curious.
1: So the story I tell is that this book was a long process. Did it in my spare time. Had other things going on, other writing stuff in my life. It took a long time to come to fruition, but. I was bouncing around ideas. I had been a published writer, uh, music-related stuff in some local publications, a couple national. I finally decided to want to write a book. Knew it would be music-related. So this is going back even before Facebook. This is when the first social media thing was MySpace. I had a MySpace page. Told a little bit of bio. I was a writer from Boston. I listed The Cars as one of my influential bands. This Cars fan got a hold of me out of the blue and said. Point blank, you should write a book about Ben Orr. I I admit the Cars were not on my short list of ideas, although they were one of my favorite bands. It hadn't dawned on me to have a possibility of writing about them. And I said, well, I love the Cars, but why wouldn't I just write about the band, the history of the band? Or if I was going to pick one particular guy, Rick. I mean, Rick was the leader of the band, the main songwriter. Um, And she said, just please investigate Ben and tell me what you think. So I looked into Ben's life a little bit, um, found out that he was from Cleveland, which I thought was very cool, home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. She had done a little bit of research, this person, and she had given me a couple of names in the Cleveland area that Ben knew when he was younger, before he became famous, if you will. I contacted those people. It kind of went from there. I learned about his life. I thought it was very interesting that Ben was sort of a childhood star if you will, in Cleveland. Um, There was a TV show in Cleveland called Upbeat. It was kind of like American Bandstand. They would bring national acts onto their TV show, lip sync the hit. But in this case on Upbeat, in the background, they would have house bands. And the producer of the show would go into Cleveland and find young rock bands and say, come be on the show, be a house band that kind of segues in and out of commercials, get a little exposure, Ben was 17 years old. He was in a rock band called The Grasshoppers. He was the guitar player and the front man, wasn't the bass player. And his band got a 13-week contract and was on The Upbeat Show. So this is 15 years before he ever met Rick. I became friends with people who knew Ben all their lives, guys who are now in their 70s and early 80s. And they said when Ben was 17, he was like a star. He would walk around and, and had females... Groupies, if you will, following him around. And I'm like, here's this 17 year old kid running the show on TV way before he ever met Rick. And I just said, I got to tell this guy's story. And and, and that's how it happened. And it's funny, I started doing interviews. Everybody I talked to would say, So, did you talk to so and so? No, who's that? Oh, you got to talk to so and so. Him and Ben were buddies. They did this and that together. Everybody I interviewed gave me somebody else to talk to, and it just went on and on forever. You would It's unbelievable how many people you realize a rock star knows. (laughs) I could still be doing interviews today. Eventually, I had to cut it off and said, I can't do this anymore. Everyone I talked to gives me three or four other people. They would send me email responses. I would edit an excerpt for the book, send it to them so they could see it. Ben was a very private person and I had to convince a lot of people to even participate. Who's this hole in the wall writer from Vermont writing about Benny? So they called him when he was young, Benny. Um so that's kind of how it happened, all really by happenstance. And I went with the project from there. Ten years later, I had a book.
0: Right. <laughs> You know, it is important to note that it is a book about the cars and Ben stands probably like he did with the band, you know, in a spotlight along with Rick. And, but he is a very blue collar immigrant from Cleveland, um, very talented on multiple instruments and very much a rock star. It's funny to watch him track that through your book. And then on the other hand, you've got Rick O'Kasick who he meets in 1968. They had both been in bands and they meet in Ohio. In early 1971, Rick moves to Boston, and he convinces Ben to come, and that changes everything.
1: Yes, they had been toiling around the Ohio area, Ohio and Michigan college towns, basically starving. I mean, these guys these guys were on the road constantly for a decade before they ended up in Boston and got their record deal. These guys um, they paid their dues. I mean, I heard stories about them guys starving and living on industrial-sized cartons of goldfish. They, like, worked at a restaurant, and their acting manager used to get these big containers of goldfish for them, and they were, they were literally living on it. Wow. Rick decides, enough of the Midwest. We've been toiling around forever. It's not happening. I'm going to Boston. It's a college town. It's a hit music scene. I'm going. Come with me. Well, Ben had recently lost his dad. Um, He lost his dad when he was young. And he basically wanted to stay in Cleveland for a while, stay at his house where he grew up in with his mom. And he wanted to take care of her and make sure she was okay. So for about a year, Rick was in Boston by himself, surveying the land, writing songs, meeting musicians, getting to know the scene. All the while talking to Ben, talking every month, gotta come, you gotta come. Once he felt okay that his mom was okay, then Ben went to Boston and they went from there.
0: And that's how they ended up in Boston. Well, Boston is a great music town, but it's also a small town, a small music town. Yeah. And I was surprised, however, how many names that I recognized. you know, I read a lot of books and I've been up here for a long time myself. Yep. But particularly during the Captain Swing days, if you follow the Boston music scene, you're like that guy, that guy, that guy. And there, there are a lot of connections, I guess. There are. And, um, you know, the Captain Swing days, they were on the brink.
1: You know, they were starting to get more crowds at their shows. Um, there's a famous WBCN uh, DJ, Max Ann Sartori, who was um, notorious, if you will, for helping bands. You know, back in the early and mid-70s, a DJ didn't have a format. A DJ could bring in a stack of albums and play something new. And she knew Cat and Swing. She had seen him a few times in the clubs and really liked him. Um, She started playing Cat and Swing. So before they even turned into the Cars, they had a batch of Cat and Swing songs. And I think one or two of them survived and became Car songs. But when he decided, Rick decided to break up Cat and Swing, He wanted a more stripped down, simpler sound. He was more like a Velvet Underground, Lou Reed kind of guy. And Captain Swing was more a lighter rock, Steely Dan kind of band. You know what I mean? More a groovy, kind of jazzy feeling kind of band. And he didn't want that sound anymore. He wanted to strip it down, make it a straight up rock band. And that's what he did. And Rick was very unique in when he created bands, he kind of did it in reverse. I mean, most bands you hear about, a bunch of musicians meet each other, they form a band, they write songs and hope they make it. He would write his songs and then create bands around that. He would write his songs and then handpick musicians, create a band, didn't like it, kick them all out, start over again. And he did that several times over. And Ben was the one guy who always survived. I consider Ben one of the four or five of my favorite voices in rock. To me, he is right there with David Bowie or, you know, uh, Paul Rogers, the way he enunciates his lyrics. He had almost like his own little niche language, and I really hooked on to that. I listened, obviously listened to a lot of cars when I was researching, always in the background. And Ben amazed me. Here's the kid at 17, started out as a drummer, 12 years old, took drumming lessons. Then by 16 or 17, an older gentleman was teaching him guitar. I interviewed the guy for the book. Whatever his band needed, by the time the cars came around, we need a front man for Cat and Swing. He was a front man without an instrument. Then the car started. We need a bass player. I'll play the bit. Ba- Whatever they needed, he did. He was the utility guy and could do anything. He wasn't a virtuoso bass player, but he sat in the pocket. A very, very underrated musician. And I learned so much about him and admired the things that I learned about him, not only as a musician, but as a person. You know, I interviewed over 100 people for this book, other musicians to just friends and things like that. So I got a really well-rounded perspective of what Ben really was, and he was uh, a very down-to-earth guy. He flipped the switch to be a rock star. He'd go on stage, dress to the nines, beautiful bass, women loving him, incredible voice. He came off stage, dropped it all, complete opposite. He was a woodsman. He was a fisherman. He liked to hunt, drove around and pick up trucks. He was a regular guy, such a unique individual. As you can tell, I learned a lot about the man, and I greatly admired him. Really did.
0: I do have to give Captain Swing one more moment in the sun. Of course. Because it's an all-time quote that's in your book, and it's one from a local musician that you interviewed. And he said, quote, Captain Swing seemed to be one part jazz, one part hippie granola, one part avant-garde, one part velvet underground, and zero part of any of what was taking hold musically and visually at that time. And I was just like, Wow. The gentleman is now passed away, who I interviewed. His
1: name is Bobby Bear. He was a drummer in a band called The Atlantics that played the Rat when the Cars did. Elliot Easton actually was in Captain Swing when they sort of morphed. Um, they got rid of a bass player. They got rid of a drummer. They got rid of a keyboard player. Not because they weren't incredible, capable musicians. Rick thought they were too good. They were too jazzed up. They were too, too many notes. And he just wanted it stripped down, a la Velvet Underground. And that's what he did.
0: You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Joe Milliken. He's the author of a book called Let's Go, Benjamin Orr and the Cars. So they're in Boston, and there's a gig at Max's Kansas City that they were hoping a record deal would spring out of. And that didn't happen. And so, as you mentioned, Rick changed the lineup again, and that one is one that we are now all familiar with. And it's really this roughly 1977 debut at the infamous Rat in Boston where the buzz started happening, right? Mm -hmm. It's just impossible to overstate how influential the Rat was back then. I had mentioned to you before we actually started
1: this interview, and I'm in in the process of going over some ideas with my publisher for my next project. And one of the ideas I had was a book about the history of the Rat. It was like the CBGBs of Boston. How CBGBs was with Patti Smith and Blondie and Talking Heads and all these bands that showed up there all at once and there was this major explosion. The Rat was the Boston version. And the list of bands that performed there, you know, before they all became big. I mean, anyone from the Cars to... Metallica to Red Hot Chili Peppers and Blondie and Talking Heads and all those bands in the early 80s that were emerging in this uh, new wave, another label for the Cars, a new wave sounding rock scene that was big in Boston, and the Rat was huge. And one of the reasons I wanted to do a story about the Rat, the late Jimmy Harold, who owned the Rat, he was friends with Ben even after the Cars became famous, Ben would go to his house in Boston and visit him. And um, he told me a few stories. I know he has some photos mm-hmm. and we talked a couple times about making that happen. Unfortunately, Harold, Mr. Harold passed away recently. So I'm kind of backing off that a little bit, have a connection with his family. I want to give them time to, you know, settle down and see where it might go. But I mean, that's how much I think the rat played an importance um, and not just the cars but the start of many bands and the place was a
0: hole in the wall. And, and also the bathrooms at both places were disgusting. I'm just going to point that out. <laughs> it's, it was disgusting, <laughs> um, but a great place to see a band. Can you a tell me a couple group. of bands that you saw there? Oh, I saw the Atlantic's, I saw Scruffy and the Cat, the Turbines, <sighs> but so many bands there. It was just, and also being at BU, it was, you know, maybe a quarter of a mile walk. You know, and I just walked to the rat, and it was oh great. My. It a was great. Line of music, yeah, but you you know you definitely tried not to use the bathroom, and I'm guessing CB's was the same story. <laughs> oh yes. so, I've seen
1: photos. Not oh pretty. yeah, it's nasty.
0: <laughs> um, so the band they go in and record some demos, and on their demos it included some of their biggest hits, and you know we talked a little bit about it earlier with the Bcn DJ, but just to show how different the music industry was then you could play a demo tape like that on the radio and that's what she did and or maybe others as well. But you know, it was their demos that really started the ball rolling, right?
1: Just what I needed was one of the Captain swing songs that got on the radio as they were morphing into the cars. The most amazing thing to me about all I learned about the debut album was that Rick had this innate ability to just whip up a band in a style and Music to match. I mean, here he is. He writes all these songs for Cat and Swing. A full show. It took him a few years to develop all these songs. You're talking about 15, 16 different Cat and Swing songs. And when he decided it was time to change, he saw the, the way the scene was turning. He wanted to strip it down and go more rock. And he took all the Cat and Swing songs and trashed them and threw them out. And like saved one or two that he thought could translate. So that whole album, when he decided to make this change, he went into his carriage house in the basement and was there for a month and wrote a whole new batch of songs, like from scratch. I mean, that would take people years to develop something like that. And he did it all in a couple of months. And it's really what amazes me about that album is how fast he could create that vibe
0: drummer david robinson neatly summed up this period saying there were three things that had to happen for us and they were uh
1: radio audience the fans and what was the other one
0: songs maybe i remember that quote
1: (laughs) you're testing me on my own book i have to (laughs)
0: reread no no that'll get it done that'll get it done and So Roy Thomas Baker, who had worked with Queen amongst other bands, uh, assumes the producer's chair. And he's a legend. And given what we know now about the Cars, a perfect fit. And what a debut album. I mean, it's a masterpiece. The
1: band wasn't sure of that. They didn't like the bombastic Queen overlaying vocals and all that kind of thing, which is all over the Cars album. Mm -hmm. He sort of introduced that idea to them about building up tracks. They were basically learning in the studio. They had done some demo stuff, but to be with a real producer for the first time and with his own ideas. So even though it was, seems like a marriage made in heaven, the band was really not sure at first if it was going to be a good fit. And of course, as you said, it turned out to be an amazing fit. I think he did their first four albums The only reason he stopped producing is because he became a house producer for Electra records. So he was kind of an in-house guy producing whatever new bands were, and he couldn't fit it in his schedule or he would have continued to work with them. They had, they were forced to find Mutt Lang
0: to do heartbeat city. The other thing is that that cover to me really set the tone for them visually. I mean, the cover says a lot. Yeah. And you know what? It's
1: funny. Um, The band didn't really like the cover. David Robinson was an an artist, and he wanted to be involved in the art direction of the album. And what turned out to be the inner sleeve of that album, some kind of really weird collage pictures of the band, that's what he wanted the front cover to be. And they said, because the who are the cars? No, no, no. This is what the cover is going to be. And your 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 nice little package can go on the inside that was the only album where they directed David Robinson after that he decided this is what our
0: album covers are going to look like and the follow-up candia which was equally a masterful record both in songs but also that cover is a classic that is iconic yeah and and didn't David sketch that out for the illustrator is that right He
1: orchestrated that, that cover was done by a famous pinup artist of the 40s. Vargas is his last name, one of David's, David collected pinup art. The man was like 80 years old and he talked him out of retirement and commissioned him to do that cover and he agreed to do it because his granddaughter liked the cars (laughs) oh grandpa you got to do that album they're a great band right but he orchestrated the model of the car was actually david's girlfriend at the time they went to a local car dealership and she laid out on the car and he took photos of it and said here's the idea and then the artist took it from there and created the cover
0: You mentioned that earlier that you just love Ben's voice. And one of the things that I find so interesting about the band is the contrast in vocal styles and visual styles. But between Rick and Ben, it's very, very interesting. Yeah, what a mix. Rick, I
1: think, is an underrated vocalist. I don't think he gets the credit he deserves. He had his own quirky little style, which contrasted great with Ben. I thought the the two different styles, you know, a lot of people didn't even don't even realize that there were two singers. A lot of people said, I didn't even know Ben was singing. But as you said, though, there is a distinct style. Ben was more of like a, a smooth crooner kind of guy. And Rick is known as saying that when I wrote songs, I didn't have either one of us particularly in mind to sing. He would write a song. They would both give it a go in the studio. Oh yeah, you got to do that. Oh, but the one thing he said about Ben was whenever I had a song that needed a serious, good vocal, it was Ben's. He realized that Ben had the golden voice he did. Mm -hmm. And that's why he always hung on to him.
0: You know, those first two records are straight up classics from beginning to end. 1980s Panorama was less successful. 81 finds the band building their own studio on Newberry yeah. street in Boston, which is a, the hippest, most fashionable street in Boston. I, I lived right around the corner from them. I used to see them hanging out there all the time, but that uh, summer, another musical zeitgeist happens that would benefit the band tremendously. And that was the birth of MTV.
1: Yeah. For the cars, it was a perfect timing thing for them. You know, they were very visual Rick with his unique image. They created some pretty, uh, <laughs> Some pretty unique and interesting videos. They look back now and the band has said they feel like they're kind of primitive now, which makes sense. I mean, it was in the 80s and they don't do videos anymore, but it was huge for them. It was a whole other stepping stone in a media that took them to new heights, world success. No question about it.
0: You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Joe Milliken. He's the author of a book called Let's Go, Benjamin Orr and the Cars. And, you know, in 83, it was Heartbeat City, which would produce one of the band's biggest hits and biggest videos, and arguably Ben's finest vocal in Drive. Although Rick, and you might think I'm crazy, gives it a run for the money. And, you know, that's one that I think dominated radio and MTV, that record.
1: They even bled into, like, adult contemporary radio with that hit it was more of a maybe more of a sophisticated sound if you will um a little more serious than their usual quirky rockingness. but drive was drive was huge i mean it was their biggest hit they never quite got to number one i think it reached number three as a single and i believe heartbeat city got to number three or four on the album chart could never bump Uh, Michael Jackson's thriller out of the number one spot so that's the only reason why they didn't have a number one and you know a story about Drive I interviewed I was lucky enough to interview Greg and David um, two of the four surviving well at the time four surviving members and he told me that Ben in the studio it was almost like a Sinatra thing for him he described it They'd be in the studio, getting ready, warming up, Ben sitting there, smoking a cigarette, just chilling out. Okay, you ready, Ben? Oh, yeah. Ready to go in there in the booth and do it. What do you mean you're ready? You just, you you know, warm up? No, No, I'm ready. Put out a cigarette, went in, did drive in one take. Came out, done. And they said they got used to Ben being like this, going in the studio and doing something in one take, a vocal in one take. And just done. They said he was a consummate professional
0: in the studio. The man knew what he was doing. <laughs> and Now that you mention it, I can hear a little Sinatra in the drive vocal. So they're at the height of their popularity right now. Yep. So solo albums, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that that's kind of a crazy strategy.
1: Rick was first, and I think it was born out of I don't think they were particularly looking I know Ben wasn't looking to do a solo record. The label asked him, Rick had done a solo album and it was born out of, you had mentioned them owning a studio. They bought Intermediate Sound. That's where Aerosmith recorded their first album. And uh, it was a very um, famous studio in Boston and they bought it. They called it the clubhouse. They renovated the place and Rick started producing local Boston bands. And I think his solo idea just sort of came out of that. He was still writing songs The band had just come off a real successful tour and album with heartbeat city. And, um, he decided to do a solo record. So minimal success had a couple top 40 songs and nothing ever approached the popularity of the cars, but the label approached Ben and said, you want to hop on board and do a solo record? He had never thought about it at the time, his fiance, Diane page, She was a songwriter and had a musical background. Ben was not comfortable with lyrics. That's why he was always just fine with singing Rick's songs. You write them, Rick, I'll sing them. I don't care. I'll find a way to find the meaning of it within me, and I'll sing. So they had a good marriage there, and Diane helped Ben write a lot of the lyrics, which became The Lace. He wrote melodies and stuff. He had a studio in his house in Boston. She wrote lyrics. They married it together. And over about a year's time, he created the solo album. You know, it didn't, didn't break any records. But, um, you know, uh, Stay the Night was a hit song. Got into the top 20. Um, the album broke the top 200 chart. It was on the charts for a few months. And he sold some records. I don't think it went gold. But um, it wasn't even anything that he was really planning on doing. It just kind of happened.
0: He also uh, played on a very famous Folkies album who was recording down the hall when he did this. Yeah. Joni Mitchell.
1: Unbelievable. Yep. And um, the man who was producing her at the time and co-managing her was also a gentleman who worked at the studio where they recorded Heartbeat City. And that's how they met her when they were recording their album. She was there too. I really, she like saw them recording and really liked Ben's voice and said, would you like to appear on an album? And he like sang backing tracks on three or four songs, I think, on that album. Crazy. He was a hired hand for Joni Mitchell. <laughs>
0: yeah. And, you know, all things uh, kind of coming full circle. The, the cars break up in 88. Ben starts the Aura Band. And they debut at the Rat, ironically, which I thought was very cool. Yeah. After a couple of renditions, the band Big People pops up. It's a super group I'd never heard of.
1: Yeah. I had not heard of that band until researching this book. The last companion Ben had was a a woman named Julie Snyder who lives in Florida. And um, she was very nice to me. She was with Ben. They were together for a couple of years, the last couple of years of his life. (laughs) the big people thing was really a surprise to me and a great way to sort of wrap up the book because Ben had had a couple of years where he wasn't very happy. After the cars broke up, he pulled out of music altogether. He sold his house in Boston. He moved to Southern Vermont, ironically, about an hour from where I live. And he was out of music for a few years, finally got the itch. I don't need to do an album. I just want to play. I just want to go out and play shows. But apparently he played in my area, very small bars and clubs, people, you know, 100 people, 50 people. And he did this a lot. What I was doing in the early 90s, I lived in this area. I don't know what happened, but I never really made the connection. So he did the ore-band and he was doing that for a few years and he would just go on tour and do shows. Sometimes for a month at a time, sometimes just a weekend thing, fly out for a festival. And then one day he got a call from Jeff Carlisi, who was original guitar player for the band 38 Special. Had a connection with Elliot Easton, gave him Ben's number. He called Ben in Vermont and said, I got some guys here in Atlanta. We're putting a band together and we all admire you for what you did in the cars. We want to know what you're doing and we want to know if you want to come down and check us out. He said, I'll be there. He flew down to Atlanta. The band consisted of Jeff Carlisi of 38 Special, Liberty DeVito, who was Billy Joel's longtime drummer, Derek St. Holmes, who was Ted Nugent's rhythm guitarist for several years in the 70s, and Pat Travers was originally in that band, Canadian rock trio, underrated, amazing guitar player. They all invited him down. They met at a Thai restaurant, and this is told to me by Julie, who was there, They were in awe of Ben. (laughs) Ben walked in. That's Ben Orr. They um, did a couple of rehearsals. He joined the band. And they started a tour warming up for Sticks. Then they started doing summer festivals. They got a management together. And they were on the brink of starting to write original material to get a record deal and put their own album out
0: when Ben was diagnosed with cancer. And he was gone in a year. And, you know, that's uh, early 2000s. And, um, you know, you recount in your book and one of the more heartfelt moments, I thought, um, just because you can visualize it. But, you know, Ben would be wheeled out on stage and be taking hits of oxygen between verses. And, you know, sadly, he requested to stop singing Drive because of his lack of stamina. And that's just.
1: Yeah. Liberty quoted in my book as saying when in the middle of a show, he looked back and mouthed the words, I can't do Drive. That's when they all looked around and said, this is it. I've seen a photo of Ben, visibly ill, skinny, hard to even recognize him. And behind his bass rig is oxygen. And he would play bass sitting on a stool. When he would sing a car song, he'd take a big hit off the oxygen, go out there and sing it and kill it. So he was literally doing shows up until a couple of months before he passed. And he literally did that. He played
0: until he couldn't anymore. On an upbeat note, sort of, um, there mm-hmm. was one final uh, reconciliation with the Cars and the band members pressed for that before he passed.
1: Yeah. Thank God. I'm very thankful. I don't even know these. Well, I mean, I've met David and Greg, but it's not like I'm personal friends of theirs. But when they got together for that last band interview, when it was literally a month or so before Ben passed, Rick and Ben had not spoken in 11 years years and the interview was for what the interview was um they were putting out an official dvd release of a tv concert that they did in like 1980 during the first tour and they were on this german tv show called musikladen And it was like an hour long, almost like Don Kershner's rock concert, like here in America. And it was just a music show. And they had guests on there. And they did a full 45-minute performance. And they were, Rhino Records was officially releasing it. So they contacted the band's management, found out about Ben, and said, you guys need to get together and bury the hatchet, if you will, and come together as a band and support Ben. And they did that interview. In Atlanta, Ben had been on tour with big people, Had flown to the West Coast, done a festival show in Palmer, Alaska, got on a plane, flew back to Atlanta, and they all met and did that interview. And ironically, a gentleman I interviewed for my book, his name is Brett Milano, very well-known Boston-area writer and music journalist. He conducted that last interview with the band, and the gentleman agreed to be my moderator for my Boston book event. So I had Brett on stage with me and he was able to talk about that last interview and how the band sort of came together and rallied around Ben. And Rick was able to express his feelings about Ben and they, you know, sort of let him know that they knew he was the rock star of the band and he was a very important element. And it really warmed my heart after researching the end of Ben's life was heartbreaking for me. I had tears in my eyes some of these conversations I had with people who were close to him it really tore me up um, after learning so much about him and writing about him and having him be a part of my life every day for so almost every day for so long it just made me feel so good to know that at the end he had come to peace and he got to reconcile with his band and he was okay
0: A one of a kind band. That's for sure. I want to give you the last word because your book ends. It's something that's uh, it's, it's, you know, quite beautiful and you go to his grave and you have a very touching remembrance of that moment at the end of your book. Can you share that with our listeners?
1: Yeah. The cars finally got inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame in 2018. Ironically, just a few months before my book was released. I mean, couldn't have better timing. This resurgence of the car is getting elected into the Rock Hall. Ben coming full circle as a Cleveland native and became only the second Cleveland native to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The other being Bobby Womack. Ironically, the third just happened, Pat Benatar. I went to Cleveland for the induction ceremony. And I got to see the band perform. They obviously thanked Ben in in their acceptance speeches. I had a couple days left before I was going back to Vermont. Ben is buried on the outskirts of Cleveland. I went and visited him. And I put this in the book only because somebody was with me to witness it. Because if I was by myself, nobody would have believed it. I have my PR person with me. Her name is Donna. She helped me a lot with the book, promoting it, setting up events and things like that. She was with me. We went to Ben. Then I had my moment with him. Just kind of sat there and I'm looking around. And I'm not not necessarily a religious guy, but I believe there's a higher power. So when we were getting ready to leave, we went back to the car. My um, friend Donna was driving a rental car. We got into the car. She turned on the engine and on cue like touching down a needle on vinyl, just what I needed came on, on cue. We turned the car on and Ben's vocal was right there. I don't mind you coming here and wasting all my time. Brings tears in my eyes still. I got such a chill. My only reaction was this hysterical laughter. It was truly an unbelievable moment. And other than my kids being born, one of the most amazing moments of my life. And that it's kind of how I end the book.
0: It's a great story and it's a great book. Uh, if you're a, f- a fan of the cars, you know, it's um, one of the few, I think bios of the bands. I haven't seen too many others. And uh, you know, it's yeah. just a really good fair take. And it's obvious that you're a huge fan. So Joe Millican, you know, congratulations. The book is called Let's Go, Benjamin Orr and the Cars, and I highly recommend it if you're a fan. It will certainly take you back in time. Probably drop the needle on a couple of records. Thank you for joining us.
1: It's been a pleasure. Um, just to let people know if anyone might be interested. In, I mean, you can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can go online and find it. But I also have a website for the book, and it's a very simple website, benorrbook.com. You can go there. You can order it directly from the publisher. You can send me a message. I personalize books. I always have books here in my closet. It's a biography about Ben. I reveal a lot of cars' history and information because they just went hand in hand. Um, I interviewed a lot of people, and I hope that it I found a way to represent Ben in a good way.
0: You did. It's great stuff. Thank you, Joe.
1: I appreciate it. Um, Let's stay in touch when I have a new project ready to go. I'd be honored to talk to you again. It's been a wonderful chat and I've had a great time. Thank you so
0: much. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com finally big ups to frankie and the pool boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts you can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services please support local and independent writers and musicians we're out until the next time and thanks again for tuning in to deep dive and allmusicbooks.com podcast and now a proud member of the pantheon podcast network